Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today alone in the Crawl Space studios. And I am alone in this interview. No Lance. But if you do want to hear Lance, he is joining us in Beyond Strange World, the new podcast from Crawl Space Media. So check that out. We dropped the first two episodes in this very feed. But Lance is coming back next week, so we will have him for some regularly scheduled programming. So this episode today is a conversation that I had with a, a young woman I, I met at CrimeCon and at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago. Her name is Emily Nestor. She does a podcast called Mile Marker 181, and it is about the death of Jalea Davis. Was it an accidental death? Was it a murder? It's a really interesting case, and she's done a great job on Mile Marker 181. So you're going to want to give that a listen after you listen to this story because it is really compelling and interesting, and she's really uncovering a lot of stuff here. So check out Mile Marker 181. Also want to tell you to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. I just had a conversation with Mike Morford of Criminology. We actually talked about Bigfoot and UFOs. And uh, a, lot, a lot to unpack on that one. And uh, last week I spoke to Captain of True Crime Garage, where I confronted him about writing a song for Maggie Freeling, which he denies, but uh, I still have my suspicions. So check the, all that out at patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. Five bucks a month gets you full access. And don't forget to check out our full archive at stitcherpremium.com. Crawlspace was started in February of 2017, so we have a bunch of old episodes on Stitcher Premium, stitcherpremium.com. And don't forget to give us a five-star review. Thank you very much for listening, and check out Mile Marker 181. Emily Nestor from Mile Marker 181 joins us today. Emily, how are you? I'm pretty good. I'm surviving. How are you, Tim? I'm doing well, surviving as well, thriving even here in the Crawl Space Studios. Oh, nice. You've, you've really got the nice setup over there. Well, I've got a much more rudimentary setup over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just say thriving like confidently, and it just sounds better than it probably really yeah, looks. Yeah, no, I, I'll, I'll take that note, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we met each other in Chicago at the True Crime Podcast Festival just in early July, or mid-July even. And that was a, that was a fun time. We had some, uh, some of the best pizza in all of Chicago. Yeah, at a California Pizza Kitchen, we did. Yeah, I, yeah, and I, I still can't even get over it. It's still really funny to me that uh, that that's where the entire group, uh, you know, walked out and walked around and uh, settled, settled over there, and some great Mexican food too, um, right around, the, yeah, 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 on the other side of the hotel. Uh, really authentic uh, Mexican food up there in Chicago. Yeah. You know what, though? I heard that they're known like for being a good city to get tacos, which really shocked me. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I did hear that while I was there. But then again, who who knows? That could have been somebody just blowing smoke. But I didn't I didn't eat much of my food. Um, Sarah, Turney and I were we were splitting that giant pitcher of sangria. So I didn't do much eating at that Mexican restaurant. Yes, yes. Uh, fun yeah. time, though, at the festival. Always good to get uh, get together with other crime podcasters like yourself and uh 
sort of bat around ideas, commiserate a little bit, talk about the business and everything. Oh, yeah. No, it was wonderful. Yeah. So um, now Mile Marker 181 is your podcast. And tell me a little bit about it. Why did you start it? Well, so I'm a local uh, to the Parkersburg, West Virginia area, and the the victim, Julia Davis, was less than a month apart in age. Um, I was actually living abroad when she was killed in November of 2011, but I remember it was such a huge story in the area. You know, it was very much a bizarre scene. There was, you know, the the idea that there was foul play involved. The last person with Julia Davis was the former sheriff's granddaughter. Mm. And the sheriff's department is the agency that investigated Julia's death. So ultimately, it was ruled an accident a little over a year later. And no one was ever charged with providing her alcohol. No one was ever charged with manslaughter. There were no charges brought. Um, but there are a lot of unanswered questions. And the scene itself is so odd in nature um, that there that there's just like an unbelievable amount of if, ands, buts. So I reached out to her mother, Kim Davis, in May of 2018. So I was actually at CrimeCon in Nashville in uh, the Wild Horse Saloon drinking and kind of was like, you know, why am I sitting on this story? Like someone really needs to cover this in like a long form format, whether that be a book or, or a documentary or a podcast. So it just kind of happened, you know, I had no intention to create a podcast out of it. I've always thought, you know, I, I would write about it. Mm. But I approached her and within the next week, she had handed me over 700 pages of case documents. So Jeez. that's kind of how it, yeah, that's kind of how it was born. Isn't that um, how it happens? You just, you, you're thinking about it, someone needs to do this, and then all of a sudden, you're doing it. Yeah, and honestly, I think that, you know, this, this sounds maybe a little bit um, egotistical, but I don't think someone outside of the area would have been able to cover it properly. I think you have to be a local to cover that case because there's so many small town kind of nuances that people don't pick up on if yeah. you're an outsider and so many connections. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. Your ear is on on the ground. You're hearing rumors, whether they're true or not. It's important to at least hear them and consider them. And someone outside the area really wouldn't be able to do that. Now, you mentioned you were abroad when when Jalea was killed. Um, w what was that like? You heard about it when you were overseas somewhere? Right. So I spent 18 months in Germany as a nanny, and I woke up one morning, you know, I'm like six hours ahead over there um, as opposed to East Coast time, and I, I had woken up and everybody was had posted, you know, the previous night about Julia Davis being killed and I had no idea who Julia was you know we had mutual friends but we never ever crossed paths and it was just I mean rumors flew immediately I mean it was within 12 hours that people it was just buzzing and it was all over Facebook is really where I I saw it and then I want to say with within maybe a month I'd have to fact check that um, the Justice for Julia Facebook page popped up and that's where everybody was sort of getting their information from as far as like what had occurred the last hours of Julia's life. Um, and 
someone outside of Julia's family had started that Facebook page, mm-hmm. but handed it over to Kim Davis, Julia's mother, to to admin essentially and post what she wanted. She kind of created a platform for Kim and then gave her full control over that. That's nice, yeah. And that uh, yeah, that that actually happened in the more Murray case as well, where someone uh, unrelated, completely unrelated, started the page and then handed it over. So I think that's a, a bit more common than uh, than people would think. It may be, I, you know, I I just I've never heard of that happening before, but it's actually kind of a great idea. Yeah, well, someone's got to do it, and a lot of times the direct uh, family members, you know, who are victims themselves, uh, can't really muster up the energy to do it. No, absolutely. I mean, it's already exhausting just processing things emotionally, let alone to to have to build a page and build an audience so if you can kind of build that audience for somebody that's a great a great thing to hand them yeah okay so when you heard about this case you were overseas you're watching it play out on facebook and did any of your friends your your actual acquaintances um have any knowledge of this case were you talking about it with them or just kind of watching from a distance I think at that point, this was the end of 2011, I think at that point I was just watching everything online and kind of monitoring the Justice for Julia page. When I moved back home in August of 2012, um, one of my high school friends and I got together and she had actually been in a car with Julia Davis the week prior to her death and had, had you know, hung out with Julia a handful of times. Um, and she was explaining to me you know, more of the details and the, he said, she said, you know, I, I really got that firsthand from someone who'd been in the area the entire time it played out and had known Julia. Right. Okay. So you've, you've gone on and started this podcast called Mile Marker 181. Great job. Uh, it's, it's really organized and there's a ton of information. True crime fans, I imagine are loving it. I, I was uh, binging all weekend uh, it's I'm almost like it's almost like weird now hearing your voice talk to me instead of at me. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, but really well done and g- give it a high high grades from the Crawl Space Studios. But uh, oh, thank you, thank w- you. <laughs> uh, so I imagine you're you're a trained journalist. You've got uh, you've got degrees in journalism. I mean, you must right. Um, no, high school graduate, twice a college dropout. But I've been I've been told recently. <laughs> I try not to read my reviews, but I did get one recently that's kind of funny. And they said like, go to journalism school. You're like a bat. Like you're making true crime podcasting look bad. <laughs> no, D- disagree. Uh, okay, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. So it's it's been an interesting learning experience as far as kind of. I haven't been trained in this formally by any means. And podcasting is so relatively new as far as a medium for journalism. Yeah, it is. And I think traditionally trained journalists sometimes get a little annoyed when um, people who aren't people like me and you, you know, are are not who aren't trained journalists are kind of having some success in this uh, digital journalism. Sometimes I think that can get annoying. So maybe that came from a a trained journalist that uh, that review. But I mean, it may have. Yeah. It may have. <laughs> the uh, the information is there. I mean, you've you've put it all out there. You've assembled this in order. And how did you get all this information? So, you know, Kim Davis handed me over everything that she had obtained through a 
massive Freedom of Information Act request. I started going through all of those documents before I, you know, I had set up social media pages. Um, She had announced that there was going to be a podcast. And for all of May and the better part of June, I just read and researched and kind of figured out how I was going to format this um, as a long form, you know, coverage because I, I felt it needed to be broken down into tiny chapters because this is such a, you know, it's only 700 sub pages, which is relatively small, but it's such a dramatic case. And there's so many um, small characters involved in it that somebody needed to kind of like lay it out and make it, you know, it needed more than 30 minutes of coverage on a show. <laughs> it yeah. needed its it needed its like fair time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just kind of, I, I kind of figured out how I wanted to lay it out. And then I would add more episodes in between and some, you know, there was some new information that somebody had come forward with. So then you get down that avenue and you've got to explore that angle. Um, so it's turned into kind of a monster that I didn't know that it was going to become. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, it seems, see, looks like you've paired with our uh, our old buddies at Audio Boom. How's... Yeah, I have. I have. This uh, year that happened. Very cool. And that, that just happened for season two? Yeah. So it, by chance, I happened to meet Karen and Georgia at one of their live shows. Um, somebody had an extra VIP ticket, and God bless her, she was such a good friend because I wasn't willing to plug my own podcast to them. I mean, that, that just who does that? Like, <laughs> I, I don't have the guts to do that. Um, but, you know, she plugged the podcast to them. And about a week later, Georgia Hardstark had tagged me in like an Instagram post. And I mean, it just like skyrocketed to 20 on iTunes for a couple days. It was it was in those top charts on iTunes. And that was when Audio Boom had reached out. And I was like, awesome. You know, thanks, Georgia. I, I really I would owe her my firstborn if I was having children. <laughs> well, great. Tell our friends over there, Audio Boom, we said hi. And so how has your life changed since you started this? Oh, I don't, this sounds really bad, but I don't know if it's changed in, in any positive directions. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's been emotionally exhausting to be quite honest, mm-hmm. um, going through something, you know, as traumatic as a traffic fatality, whether it's murder or accident, um, and looking at photos that her family has never even looked at that came from the medical examiner. These are things that I wasn't, you know, I'm not a trained journalist and I'm not in law enforcement. I'm not in the medical field. So I'm not used to this type of, um, of image. And honestly, the emotional impact has been pretty, it's been harder than I, than I thought. I put it off for a long time. Um, Overall, I my life is changing in a positive direction. It's a slow build, but uh, you know, a year ago, if you had told me like, "Hey, you're going to be doing like these big projects and investigating other cases, and you know, like planning two years in advance," like I I wouldn't have believed you. Right. Um, I've learned a lot. Yeah. Personally and professionally, I've learned a lot. And how are you taking care of yourself? You you mentioned an emotional impact. How are you dealing with that? Fortunately, I have a built a pretty good support system within the true crime genre. Um, I've I've become pretty good buddies with Paul Haynes, who is Michelle McNamara's researcher on I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and and helped to finish that book after her passing. Mm-hmm. Fellow um, crawlspace alum. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah, he's wonderful. Um, so, you know, as far as the research aspect, he and I can totally talk about that. You know, he's miles ahead of me. He can find people faster than anyone I know. If I need somebody, <laughs> if I need somebody's contact information, I reach out to Paul Haynes. Right. But, uh, you know, I have him and I, you know, I've got Sarah Kalin who was on Hell in the Heartland and she is former law enforcement. So she's kind of like my, my gal pal when it comes to that stuff. I've, I've got an investigative journalist friend who, who keeps me sane here in town. And, um, and I've got, you know, for some current and former law enforcement friends now who I can talk about the really graphic stuff with and not to make light of death in any means, but you know, you have to develop a sense of humor about, about crime and about the really dark stuff or you just like crack under the pressure. Yeah. So, it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit much, uh, the emotional impact can, uh, can be really exhausting and come out. I mean, it, it will come out in ways that you're not expecting or you don't want to, um, if you don't deal with it head on and admit that Absolutely. it's there, you know, yeah, one thing yeah. I've and I, I, I closed that off and acted tough for about, I think it started to hit me in January emotionally. Um, I, I just couldn't like put out the content that I was wanting to rapidly enough. And I really had to take a break because, you know, I was worried I was becoming too biased and I like from a journalist aspect, I, I I had to kind of step back and reevaluate and focus on some other projects and then come back to this in June. Yeah. So it's been full force since CrimeCon, though. It Yeah, since right. the beginning of June. Great. And uh, how are you feeling about your safety? You're, uh, you're delving into a pretty hot topic. Um, and have you received any threats or any bullying or anything crazy like that? Oh, I think if you put yourself out there online, you're always going to have bullying. But yeah. these are mostly just from people who probably know you in your real life. Like, there's plenty of people, I'm sure, that don't like me. So I kind of assume some of that is heckling from them. And then some people, you can tell they just don't understand. Like, they, they haven't listened to the details. They they have some, like, misconceptions about the case. And, you know, there's nothing I can do. They've just got to re-listen to the content itself. I've never felt unsafe. I've had some, like weird interactions more with people that listen to the podcast or that have like you know I'm, I'm getting ready to do like a library event um next week and I'm kind of concerned that some some people some locals may come out of the woodwork and have like some really interesting things to say but I you know I've never felt unsafe I haven't had any direct threats you know nothing along those lines yeah Okay, good. Um, I just just mostly like you know not naysayers, but but harsh critics. So I've been pretty lucky in that in that sense. And in the beginning of the podcast, you you talk about a personal story um, that might have kind of gotten you into true crime a little bit at a younger age. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. You know that's actually turning into another podcast. <laughs> oh wow! So yeah. So when I was roughly 13 I know I was um in seventh grade I had already by this point watched the silence of the lambs um I think I read the book that following summer but I was obsessed with law and order SVU so I was well you know I was raised on forensic files and all of that my mom was a a, a psych nurse Okay. So I grew up with, you know, already interesting stories. My dad had been a security guard and has a criminal justice degree. So I kind oh, of wow. grew up. It's like, oh, well, clearly this was going to happen. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. 
I had gone to the library when I was 13 to look for a book and I was in a kind of an isolated corner of the library and noticed somebody out of out of my like peripheral vision um it was somebody I had noticed actually staring at me as they drove past as I'd entered the library crossing the street and I was like okay well you know this is weird he's he's staring at me and then I kind of like looked him over and he was exposing himself so the the irony you know I have to find humor in this the irony is we were literally standing between Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys I mean you can't make this up it <laughs> <Yeah>. was <laughs> I was probably back in Nancy Drew for a reason but right I I just acted like I didn't see anything I went and told the librarian and it turns out that he had actually exposed himself to two eight-year-old girls two weeks prior to that, but they hadn't said anything to anyone until they got home that evening. So they weren't able to kind of track the guy down. Um, the librarian immediately knew. I said, hey, I have to talk to you about something. And the, the only thing I could say was like, there's a guy with his pants down back there. Mm-hmm. And she called the cops. They got there in time. You know, they arrested him. Um, I had to go down and look at like a six pack like of mug shots basically and pick him out of a photo lineup and make a statement. And um, but I just wanted to make sure he didn't get away. Like I tried to play it really cool for a 13 year old girl. Like I'm going to nail this guy to the wall. (laughs) But um, it actually turns out that later on his daughter, his biological daughter came out to her mother. Um, They hadn't been living together, but she had been visiting him on school breaks and he had been sexually abusing her for six years Mm. when she would come to visit him on school breaks. And I was able to record several hours of audio with her in New York City this past March. So that is going to turn into maybe a four-episode, five-episode project. And we're going to have some expert opinion come in. And, and it's I think we're going to turn it into something educational and not just kind of sensationalist, you know? Yeah. P- people do talk about uh, molestation and sexual abuse. Um, but usually it seems like it's from outside of the family source you know with within school or church or a family friend but I think it's still quite taboo to talk about intrafamilial abuse Mm -hmm. um you know your uncle your brother your father type of thing um because that really tears families apart and it seems like there's this extra motivation not to make it into a huge thing because you, you the whole family becomes a spectacle yeah. So it's going to be an it's going to be an interesting it's going to be very heavy, though. It's not going to be for everyone. Yeah. Well, that sounds like important work. So I wish you the best of luck on that. Thank you. Yeah, it, it's heavy. It's heavier than than death, I dare say. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd rather I'd rather cover murder than I would um, pedophilia. Yeah. OK, well, speaking of death and uh, perhaps murder, Jalea Davis was 20 years old when she was killed in 2011, November 19th, 2011. So take us through this story a little bit. I know it's um, it's a bit complicated. There's a lot of timestamps. This kind of developed over the course of an entire night, started with some what sounded like some heavy drinking earlier in the night and kind of ended on the highway uh, in the in the wee hours of the morning, around four in the morning, um, really closer to three a.m. Um, approximate time of death would have been about two forty-five in the morning. Okay, yeah. So 
essentially what happened is Julia Davis went to hang out with a friend and get ready. They were going to go out to um, like a house party and a bar later that night. Um, from what I, my personal opinion um, and what I can gather, they were doing some drinking at that friend's house, at, at Kristen Bechtold's house early in the evening when they were getting ready, putting makeup on. Um, the next stop they go to is a house party um, where a mutual friend had invited them. That mutual friend um, was Freddie Scott, who knew Kristen Beck told. Mm. While they are at that house party, which is right before Thanksgiving, so you keep in mind everybody that's out of town that had just gone away to college is back in town. It's a huge party weekend yep. where I'm from. Everybody packs the bars. Everybody goes out that weekend because it's basically a giant reunion. Mm-hmm. So they end up at a house party. Um, they're drinking Ciroc vodka there. Um, it it sounds like they finished off a bottle, but this is between how many people. Um, and, and, you know, we know Julia's blood alcohol content. There's no way she consumed an entire bottle of vodka on her own. It's just scientifically, it, it, there's no evidence to support that. Yeah, I got hung up a little bit on that. And, and you kind of talk about it in your in your podcast. Uh, Julia reportedly did 15 or 16 shots yeah, Kristen Bechtold claims that Julia did about 16 shots. So when you look at the blood alcohol content that that would have achieved for Julia, at, you know, with her with her height and weight, she would have she would have been comatose if not deceased before she ever left for the bar. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was never as intoxicated as you would be if you had taken 16 shots of vodka. That's totally absurd. Right. And Kristen um, said she took about 15, right? Yeah, roughly the same amount. So that, so, and if, you know, I've done the math, like yeah. if you're pour, pouring like an ounce or an ounce and a half shot glass, that's an entire bottle of vodka, of Ciroc vodka each. Yeah, that's just like insanity. that's Like that is bad math. That, that's, there, there's no way that checks out. Now, but, a- any way they were just like taking sips or something and she called it shots? Um, Somebody had brought up that they used to do baby shots someone yeah. had mentioned that to me that when they would party they would just do like baby shots uh-huh. but i feel like that's something don't you think if you were being like questioned about it by an investigator you would sort of explain that i mean she seemed to have no clue about how drunk 16 traditional shots would make someone i mean i couldn't do that i'm sure i weigh a lot more than Jalea and Kristen. right so yeah, it's uh, very confusing. Seems seems dishonest um, on its face. Oh, absolutely. And you know there are a lot, a lot of lies of commission that Kristen has told that I can prove are lies based solely on phone records. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, like you're checking in to make sure Julia is getting picked up by this person. You, you know, you're claiming that, but that call was never placed. There's there's a lot of small stuff like that, which yeah. tends to make you look very suspicious. You know, sometimes there's explanations for that. You know, if you're if you're providing alcohol to an underage person, and by the by dawn they end up deceased obviously you want to you want to cover your own butt you want to make sure that you're not going to get charged with involuntary manslaughter or furnishing alcohol to a minor whatever that charge may be um ultimately you know julia davis did not have a fake id someone was providing her alcohol that night um 
if, if it was an accident, someone should still be held accountable. If it was murder, that's a whole other ball game. Yeah, you can almost see someone lying uh, for that reason. You know, they they are the ones who who got Julia drunk or bought her the bottle or whatever. Um, but obviously, lying about murder is not uh, not understandable. Sure. Sure. So, <laughs> I mean, um, lying really lying about any of it. It's just you know, this is someone's life, and and if you're working to cover your own, but I, I mean, I can understand. You never know how you're going to react until you're in that situation. But yeah, there were many, many, many lies told, and I think that makes the case so much more complex. Yeah. Because what's the motivation for that lie? Is it murder, or is it you just trying to like save your own skin? Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty shady. Um, okay, so you've done a lot of tests with your with your podcast. You actually really went out at 3.30 in the morning with your mom? I did go out at the same time of day um, with my mom to help me record the experiment. And I took the same route that Kristen Bechtold and Freddie Scott and Katie Nelson would have all taken, you know, based on their stories. Uh-huh. What are you doing really going out at that time of day? You just, you just. Yeah. So I drug my mom along for that experiment, like in the wee hours of the morning. And there's just no way that that timeline, something's off with that timeline. There's something off and I, I can't quite put my finger on what it is, but it's impossible to be in two places at once. And that's kind of what I was trying to achieve with that. Right. With that experiment. You were trying to sort of show, show another lie. Um, but, but you didn't have to drag your mom along with you. Come on. <laughs> well, at that point, I didn't have a mobile recorder, so I had my MacBook in my passenger seat, and she held my microphone for me from the back seat while we drove that route. Well, she's very supportive. So, that's uh, that's wonderful. Yeah, she is. And then you you even yeah. uh, said you were go- you were considering going out again at that time of night. I was like, don't just pretend you're going out at that time of night. <laughs> Well, ultimately, I'm going to have to do it uh, again and again and again. <laughs> so, you know, it's 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 something that I've kind of resigned to. I I know that I'm going to be out that late several nights okay. um, shoot, shooting stuff and re-recording things and, you know, ultimately taking Jalea's route at the same time of night as well. Right. Okay, so take us through Jalea's route and how she ended up on the highway. Well, there's a lot of questions surrounding that, and I know that one of the questions the Davis family had that I think I have been able to give an answer to more um, affirmative to which route she took. It wasn't normal for Julia Davis to choose the interstate. She normally took like a state road, uh, a two-lane road to get home. Um, She wasn't comfortable driving on the interstate. She hadn't had a lot of experience driving on the interstate. I was able to learn how to read the cell phone tower maps, so the data that's coming off of cell phone towers and the panels, and kind of look at basically how the these um, these fans overlap on a map, and you can pinpoint the route that someone has taken. So I've been able to confirm, you know, her phone was headed towards the interstate. She was on the interstate because there had been um, some questions about if she had actually driven through town and hopped on the interstate at a later exit. So I was I was able to narrow down what route she took um, and place mm-hmm. her in a moving car, you know, at a certain time based on where her cell phone is pinging. So when you first got all this material, what, what were some of the things that jumped out to you about um, Jalea's death? 
and just just looking at some of this information here, it you know, and based on what I've heard you uncover, it seems confusing that the Ohio Medical Examiner's Office uh, ruled her death an accident. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but police concluded she was ejected from the window after hitting a guardrail. Right. So we're, we're dealing with West Virginia here. She was an Ohio resident. Um, so the West Virginia medical examiner, he didn't make an initial ruling. He essentially waited to kind of have investigators give him their take on what had happened. Um, he said, you know, he basically he couldn't determine based on the injuries what had occurred. <laughs> so he kind of cl- closed it and ruled it accidental as far as her cause of death, you know, blunt force trauma to the head, um, based on what the sheriff's department of Wood County had told him had happened, mm-hmm. what they had ruled had happened as far as like um, accident reconstruction. So yeah. as far as what stuck out to me most um, the scene itself, you know, I, I'm, I don't claim to be like a true investigator. I don't know the first thing about crash, uh, reconstruction. I know a little more now than I did a year ago, but yeah. looking at that scene, even just as a normal, like civilian, you look at that and you're like, how in the world did this happen? Um, the way that they're claiming, um, so what they're saying is that she hit essentially the the right front headlight of her Kia Optima at you know at an angle into a, the guardrail and then her car did what is essentially called a yaw that's uh Y A W um and that second impact would be what had ejected her from the car you know she wasn't wearing a seatbelt um that she hit the A pillar of her vehicle on the way out um which is basically like the beam that you that is separates the windshield from the like passenger side window that she actually ejected out of the passenger side window and then did a series of really impressive uh gymnastics um to end up over in almost in the median of the passing lane so she's hitting on the right side you know at the guardrail headed headed northbound and her body ends up almost in the median and then her car ends up three tenths of a mile farther down the road you know it's still in gear uh headlights are still on it's you know the heat's still running but the car is three tenths of a mile farther down the road so that's that right there is a huge thing that stands out and you're thinking how in the world is there such a great distance between um her body and her vehicle you know that, that automatically is is a huge kind of red flag now the other thing that stands out to most people is the way that her clothes were found over the guardrail because she was found with just jeans and her underwear on no shoes um no bra no top so her clothes were yeah were kind of hanging off the guardrail um co- covered in blood that you know the outer the pea coat that she was wearing was did have blood um and then there's things that that stood out to me that it was just like oh this seems almost like kind of, you know, not intentional, but kind of negligence on the part of the sheriff's department. They left the hood of her coat, which was over the other side of the guardrail. They left that behind. Julia's grandfather actually found that the following morning. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so wait, let me just uh, try to see if this makes sense here. So wait, there was blood on the coat. 
even mm-hmm. though she wasn't wearing the coat when she was killed? So they're saying that she had on, you know, all, all of her clothing as she was ejected, but the clothing would have caught on the guardrail and that she'd been ripped out of it. Uh, it, it the which that's that is possible i mean it does happen the the weird thing about it is she was found or the the clothing was found in the opposite order that it should have come off in you know if you're coming out of clothing think about it you know and you have a jacket a shirt and a bra on the first thing that's going to get ripped off of you is the outer layer and that's the jacket so the way that the clothes were stacked on the guardrail was bra against the guardrail then shirt then peacoat yeah. So you would think it would be the first thing ripped off would be the first thing touching the guardrail. They were all laid on top of each other? Yeah, essentially. Now, was that just uh, like a witness came by, picked, picked that stuff up, and then just put it there? Well, so I've, I've personally spoken to the first person that stopped at the scene and actually called 911 and confirmed that it was indeed a human body in the road. Yeah. Um, we have no, no idea how many people really could have passed her by because she was at one point mistaken for a deer in the road um, just due to the lack of clothing. So, you know, and, and she almost, you know, she wasn't identifiable anymore as, as a female. So, we, you know, I've spoken to the first two people, the gentleman that actually partially ran over her body with his tractor trailer as he was trying to avoid hitting the first witness that had stopped. Um, I've spoken to both of them and they both swear up and down. They never actually went up to where her clothing was because it was a distance between the clothing, you know, the point of supposed impact and her body. Yeah. And you would, you would hope the police wouldn't do that because uh, maybe they don't know it's a crime scene at, at the time and maybe it still isn't, I guess, but Sure, sounds like it is, and uh, you would hope they would know to preserve a scene. Right. I, I actually, my personal opinion, and based on something a witness has said, was that one of the deputies that arrived um, from the crash reconstruction team went over to the clothing, picked up the coat off the top to see what was underneath, and then laid it back, but the positioning of the clothing itself was different. You know, okay. and, and I have no idea if that's true. That's what I'm being told by someone at the scene. Okay. But there's really no way for me to confirm that. Right. So I, I, I do take it at value. I, I It's totally possible. I mean, even, you know, law enforcement, they're human as well. Yeah, you would hope that something would be preserved, but these things do happen. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of times there's there's innocent explanations. Are uh, Have you spoken with current law enforcement in this? Are they um, reopening the case or anything like that? Uh, they are not reopening the case. Uh, the current sheriff is open to reopening the case, um, but he needs some kind of evidence that isn't pure hearsay, which is understandable. You know, a lot of resources, a lot of money, a lot of manpower does go into this. Sure. So to reopen it and, and it not be justified, I'm not even sure if he's allowed to do such a thing. Um, you know, he still has superiors, I'm sure, that he has to answer to. So I do understand that, you know, which the hope is if somebody knows something and that they can prove that they would come forward. Um, but the fact is you can't reopen a case based on hearsay. You've got to have some tangible evidence. Yeah, but you did get a pretty uh, wonderful witness or uh, someone who reportedly heard Kristen's mom, or I guess Kristen's mom said something to her in uh, while they were in a... Um, a mental health facility. A mental yeah, health a mental facility. Health facility. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, um, 
you know, I, I've spoken with that um, source that came forward multiple times. Um, she very much wants her identity protected because she was in there for her own reasons. You know, she was struggling um, and she doesn't want that part of her life exposed, which is totally understandable. OK, so the only thing we know about her is her name isn't Anna. Correct. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> okay. Um so, you know, she had some pretty, I don't want to say wild, but some pretty serious um, claims that she had heard Kristen's mother state, you know, my my daughter murdered her best friend or my stepdaughter, she referred to her as. Um, I, I really, I feel confident in that I can place Kristen's mother in that mental health facility. I have spoken to someone that worked in that facility at that time, and they have confirmed to me I saw her there. You know, they, they can't confirm it with paperwork because that's a massive HIPAA violation. And they're no longer employed there anyways, you know. Um, it's kind of frowned upon even that she's come forward to tell me, hey, I, she was there. Um, you know, and unfortunately, Sherry, Kristen's mother, has since passed. Um, it's It's been about a year and a half now. So there's no way to follow up with her and, and figure out, hey, you know, what do, what do you know? But... Not you know you find that I, I've encountered that a couple different times now um, with people in this case that have already passed away and that we can no longer talk to. Yeah, has Anna spoken with police, or they're still not doing any uh, current interviews or anything like that? You know, that's something I can bring up at a meeting tomorrow. <laughs> okay. So I, I, you know, if if he wants to speak with her, she said that she, you know, if the current sheriff wants to speak with her, then he said he, you know, would probably be happy to do it and. Um, she is willing, or at least that's what she's told me in the past. She sounds very credible. Yes. Um, you know, I, I do believe that Cherry was on that unit. Now, can I say for sure how that conversation went? No. And that's just not something I can claim to ever be able to substantiate at all. Yeah. Okay. It is compelling, though. It is compelling. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah, she she spoke so confidently and, and knew some of the details of the actual ward. And I think that was... Um, sort of, sort of telling that she was really in there. So I think, I think your experiment in kind of quizzing her was really well done, and really sort of proved that she was definitely there. Um, obviously, the circumstances of how that conversation went are unknown, but you only have one side of it. But it would be great if that person could speak with law enforcement, see if they can convince them too that they weren't, uh, that they're not lying about it. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, and that's something I'll be touching base with with Anna again um, in the near future. And, you know, I, I may recommend, um, hey, why don't you just give like a written statement and drop it off? Yeah. yeah. So, OK, so it seems like Kristen and Jalea were friends uh, before Jalea's death. And it seems like she's hiding things. What now? Do you know that they got into an argument or something like that that night? Yeah, um, you know, it was heard as background noise by Julia's sister. Um, even Freddie Scott himself says that they were kind of like bickering. Everybody seems to be quite open about the fact that they had gotten into an argument. Um, no one says that it became physical or anything along those lines, but that there was a, you know, some heated back and forth about a set of keys. So, you know, everybody has been pretty open about that fact that does seem to align with everyone's story. A set of keys. Okay. Yeah. And right. was that something that people were looking for that night? 
Right. So, you know, it's funny because there's kind of two different versions to this story. One version is that Jaleel wanted her car keys and Kristen wasn't wanting to give them to her um, to stop her from driving or whatever. Um, And then there's another version of the story that it was actually Kristen's house key that Jaleel had and couldn't locate and that had like angered Kristen. So there's even within that, there's two different stories that we're hearing. Okay, and wasn't Jalea also uh, getting kind of close to Kristen's ex-boyfriend that night? Um, it was actually Katie's ex-boyfriend, but Katie was among that group. So, okay. yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so there's two of them that potentially have uh, an issue with Jalea that night. Where does Freddie come into this? That's a great question. Um, I'm not sure uh, that I can even really give you a proper answer to that. Um you know, he's he's very much like a wild card in this situation. You know, I have him on videotape. I've, I've seen the videotape. I actually got it um, myself from the sheriff's department in the last couple of weeks, um, cool. a copy of it for myself. And there's no doubt at all that Freddie Scott was at the McDonald's drive-in uh, or at the drive-through, you know, roughly 3.27 a.m., something mm-hmm. like that. I, I, I'm fuzzy on my times. Um, I would have to go back and look exactly. But... You know, there's no way for him to have been on the interstate with Julia. Now, the the debate seems to be whether he could have picked Kristen Bechtold up if Kristen had been with Julia in Julia's vehicle. That he could have left McDonald's and gone to the interstate and picked Kristen up. From the scene of the accident? Yes. Okay, so who was with Julia then? Is there anyone confirmed to have been with Julia that night? When not she confirmed. Died? No. Right. Not in the vehicle when she when she was killed. No. Okay, but you think uh Kristen was with her? Well, I can't really <laughs> I can't really put that out there whether I think yes or no. Um yeah. and that and that is on my part pretty um pretty much speculation. Um but there there's a good argument to be made that Kristen was in a moving vehicle with her towards the interstate at one point. Um I it's just, you know, as far forensically like we we can't prove that. Right. Okay, and uh does it seem like Julia was actually killed on the highway or was she killed somewhere else and brought to the highway? Um she was absolutely 100% without a doubt killed. Um, there on the interstate okay so when you look at the scene itself and this is quite graphic but um that's a lot to do with this case it's a very very graphic case um she you can you can see where the point of impact was as far as her head meeting the inner post of the guardrail so you can locate the exact point of um of death ah okay yeah so it's it very much, very much clear um, what killed her, and that was blunt force trauma. So, Okay. And so that was the guardrail on the left side of the road or on the right side of the road? On the right side of the road when you were headed her direction. Okay. The path she was taking, right. Okay, so she was apparently or at least officially driving the car when that happened? Um, that's, that's what they determined through their investigation. Um, now the the really unfortunate thing is Julia's, um, model of car, the sensor for the passenger seat was previously broken. This was a reconstructed title. Um, the car had been totaled the year prior, um, Mm -hmm. from an accident with a deer and then, uh, reconstructed title. And then it, 
it fell into Jalea's possession. Um, that sensor may have been broken from that incident or just had had um, broken on its own, you know, over time. Uh, but there's no way to determine if someone was in the passenger seat or not. Okay. So, you know, in their final um, report, when they closed this as an accident, they said, we can determine that no one was in the passenger seat based on the fact that the sensor didn't indicate it. Well, the sensor was broken the whole time. So it's totally bogus to say that you can say for certain yeah. that that Jalea wasn't acting as a passenger or if that somebody else had been in the passenger seat. I mean, there's no way that you can scientifically just completely say no one was there. Okay, now back to the drive-through real quick. You said that um, that Freddie was time-stamped going through the McDonald's drive-through, and he had a passenger in the car with him. Who was supposed to be in the car with him at that time? So he actually had two passengers, um, okay. one in the the passenger seat of the front and one directly behind him on the driver's side of the back seat. Um, you can see the person in the back seat a little more clearly. You can definitely tell that it's a female. Um, she's on her phone, but you can't really make out 100% who it is. You, you have a better idea of figuring out who that person is. Now the passenger, um, that was up front sitting next to Freddie Scott, all you can see is like part of an arm and a leg. You can make out that it's, it's a female, but there's really nothing else you can gather from that angle. And that's something I've got to explore more because I now have every angle to the cameras that was retrieved from ah. the sheriff's department. So I'm going to be able to go through and look at other footage to see if I can exactly say who those two people were. Okay. And you said that, because Freddie was confirmed to be at the drive-thru at that time, that meant that he definitely wasn't on the interstate when Jalea was killed. So that means Correct. those two passengers weren't either, but Jalea, <laughs> but Jalea was killed before that. So was Freddie aware of it at that point? Um, it would have almost been simultaneous. Ah, okay. So it would have been roughly the same time that Jalea, you know, is traveling to the interstate and being killed in whatever manner. Um, so it's very much a solid alibi if you can confirm who those two passengers are, but that's kind of the hard part. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, details, a lot of interesting things, um, a lot of phone calls and, and text messages that are time stamped as well. So yes. it seems like there there is a lot of information out there for you to do and and kind of organize the way you did um, in your show, which is great, and, and putting these uh, sort of statements side by side to see where the lies are. And I think you uncovered a lot of them. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes, it, it, you know, there are things, especially if you're intoxicated, you know, could you tell me exactly, you know, last week what you ate? every day or what time you left or what you were wearing or what someone said it's it's it is very hard so i have to give them credit for that i know um, all you know, those answers yeah oh you do know all those answers. oh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> um i don't and i've i've done actually like the interrogation experience um at crime con in oh. nashville and i i realized you know just how easily like witness testimony or you know te some kind of statement that you make like where you were when with who um, it's, it's very hard, you know, in hindsight, you can remember if you're firsthand experiencing the trauma, but if you, you know, weren't there at the scene, it may be hard to like give a proper alibi. So 
And you've got to you've got to take that into play. Now, there's definitely you know there's definitely some lying going on here, but how much of that is even you know intentional? Yeah, I guess what I was getting at is I'm wondering if uh, if Freddie and the crew there went to McDonald's to establish an alibi, or whether or not they just happened to be there and this you know they they those people in that car did not kill Jalea. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's a lot of gray area here. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's, there is. But, um, yeah. you know, I'm excited to have my hands on that video footage now as well so I can go through all of that and kind of see what else I can get on angles. And, you know, I, I do actually have pictures from Julia's cell phone that were recovered of herself and Katie Nelson and Kristen Beck told out that night. So if I can say, oh, this person was wearing this pattern or this color, that may help to identify them possibly in any surveillance footage. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, if I can get the right angle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Emily. Well, thank you very much for joining us here today. And I just have one more question. What What are your plans? Where is this going? What's the end game here? Oh, goodness. That's a broad question, Tim. Yeah, there's like three um, of them, too. <laughs> <laughs> um. So as far as this project goes, you know, I want to see it through. Like, I want answers. I want to know what the truth is, you know, um, as much as I can find it. You know, I just dig and dig and dig. Um, but I do want to wrap it up into sort of a neat package for the listeners. Um, that should be happening February or shortly after. You know, I'm doing episodes every other week now. Um, as far as, like, other stuff goes I have two other cases that I'm getting kind of digging into uh, as next projects and you know I'm not even sure that they'll become podcasts or be covered in any real sense but these are cases I personally just want to see closed cool any uh, any hint on what those are um, one is a cold case uh, out of my area in 1986 there was a conviction made but it was later um, appealed and the the um, person that had been convicted was exonerated. Mm. So I'm, I'm not convinced he was the one that did it. Actually. I, I think there's a very strong argument to be made for the victim's ex fiance. Mm. Um, and there's actually DNA in that case. And I am trying my hardest to get my hands on those case files. And I'm getting roadblocks from uh, the police department because they're telling me it's an active case when I think you and I both know the difference between an open case and an active case. Yep. So, you know, I'm going to I'm going to call like bull crap on that one. <laughs> All um, right. Well, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to get my hands on those files. So that's like my next big goal. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, keep raising hell. Keep shaking the apple tree. <laughs> we love what you're doing over there. So Thank uh, you. congratulations. Well done on the show. And uh, we're following along your uh, your next moves. So thanks yeah, for joining thank us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's lovely. Thank you.